Welcome to... Hey, Great Shot. This is the Great Shot Podcast brought to you by Crack Rackets. My name is Alex Gruskin. You know, to bring you guys, listeners, a little bit behind the scenes, earlier this week I recorded a State of the Union podcast about the U.S. Women's 2018 season with my good friend on the rise blog, or my former good friend, I may have to say, on the rise blog founder, tennis Twitter founding father, and just tennis, well, I'm going to call him a tennis know-it-all, Jonathan Kelly, and it was a wonderful pod. We went two hours, we shared jokes, we shared takes, we did all the things you want to do in a tennis podcast. The one thing we did not do is have a good producer on the line. Whenever I'm left to production responsibilities, you know something's going to go wrong. So unfortunately, we lost that audio to the the forest of tennis twi- uh, forest of tennis audio. I don't know wherever it goes after, but you will not be hearing that pod. However, we had so much fun recording it that I thought, you know, f- it. let's try it again. So joining me on today's Great Shot podcast, as I mentioned, on the Rise Tennis Blog founder, you can find him on tennis Twitter at, John, at Joe Kelly underscore tennis, one of my favorite followers, one of the tennis personalities I've been following since I've been a big fan of the game. It is Jonathan Kelly joining us back on the Great Shot podcast today. Jonathan, hey, Great Shot. Alex, you know what? I think you sucked up to me just enough to put me back in a good mood. That was really well done. I applaud you for that. That was great. Uh, you know, it only took me take two of what is, it seems like a, it's been a four-week podcast in the making. Yeah, so you didn't hopefully... even include the first the first three three uh, elements of the saga, the first three legs of the journey that you did here. Well, you know, the joys of it being my podcast is I don't have to mention the stuff I don't want to talk about. And so we're going to leave that in the past, although I am sure there will be plenty of jokes about what happened sprinkled in throughout this episode. Um, as I mentioned, you know, with the tennis 2018 tennis season in the rearview mirror, we have had time to reflect, look back on the season as a whole, you know, come up with our takes, our takeaways, who we thought improved, who we thought declined a little bit, who are the players we saw that you know stood out to us as this is who we should be watching moving into 2019. So as I mentioned, what Jonathan and I are going to be doing today, just like we did on the men's side, a full State of the Union about the subject of U.S. women's tennis. We are going to break down our top 10 seasons from the year, talk about our honorable mentions as, you know, as I mentioned before, when when we do this podcast, we did it with the men. When we did this podcast last Thursday, I had not seen Jonathan's list. We try to have a natural conversation. I do know some of the things he's going to say. This will be a very unnatural conversation because we've already gone <laughs> to the entire thing. In full, in depth, late at night, drunk off my ass. <laughs> Well, I'll say this. It was we recorded that pod from 11 p.m. to about 1 a.m. Eastern time. You knew it was gonna, something funky was going to happen, and it was awesome. So, I am ready though to relitigate those some of those takes. I listened back to some of my side of the audio because I felt like I really knew what I was talking about in that moment, and so I wanted to. You know, it's a rare moment when I'm confident in my takes post pod, and so I am ready to relitigate a lot of these things. I have also adjusted slightly, so I'm ready to you know poke you in a couple of different ways but with that Jonathan you ready to go yeah let's do it 
All right. I, and to, again, for all of our listeners who want to read more about these players after the fact, want to see some of their stats from this year, check out our website, CrackedRackets.com. You can learn all about what's going on in the tennis world, but you'll also have the chance to see both mine and Jonathan's lists, as well as some other stats on what is commonly known as Gruskin's Notebook, uh, an article we usually put out with our outline from the pod. But okay, enough chit-chat. Jonathan, I want to stick with the same question we started with last time, which is this. You know, so much tennis is played during the 2018 season. It, you know, tennis is one of the rare sports that really is 11 out of the 12 months there's action on tour. And so it's hard to follow everything. You know, there's a lot of different minutiae that goes along with tennis. You have, you know, the clay season, grass season, hardcore season, as well as the WTA level, WTA premier level, and then, you know, the 125K, 60K. So there's a lot to follow. You know, looking big picture, what is your takeaway from the 2018 U.S. women's season? <clears throat> okay, so based on um, an overall deep, deep, deep dive into it, um, I'm going to say that U.S. women had, I'm going to call it a runner-up season. It had what could have been a pretty fantastic season that just came up short in the end a lot of times. And Basically, last year or last last year last <laughs> last time I recorded this, I said that it was a disappointing year. Not <laughs> like last year. Oh, it was a disappointing year, and that it was. I mean, American women had, uh, like I said, I tracked the number of main tour match wins that American men and American women have uh, every year. And starting in 2011, when they only had 127 wins, and I'm going to show you how bad that was, just 127 years in 2011, they improved every single year up until 2016. So they went from 127 and to 224 the following year, 286, 301, 316, and finally in 2016, they had 340 match wins, which is the most match wins that they've had um, since... 2004, which was, um, I think, maybe the last year that Lindsay was still playing uh, playing tennis. So um, <laughs> last year, they did go down pretty significantly. A lot of that had to do with a certain pregnancy, which we'll be talking a lot about. They went down <laughs> to 288, so 52. This year, they went down to 240, so almost another 50 from last year and a full 100 matches less than 2016. That's not good, especially when you have so many players um, getting older, better, stronger. Um, and there are a number of players who just had really disappointing years compared to uh, what we'd expected of them and what you'd think that they would do. But most of all, I'm looking at the number of WTA finals in which they played, so finals of WTA tournaments. Uh, combined American women reached 10 finals, which is pretty good, and combined American women won one WTA title this year. That's that good. I mean, 10 finals, as you mentioned, pretty solid. That's a number to hold your hat on. And something I want to explore in terms of that wins drop you look at 2018, you don't want to say it was a generational shift. Of course, Serena doesn't play the full year, but still, we got two Grand Slam finals out of her. 
Uh, you know, Sloan Stevens, Madison Keys were still top 20 players in Sloan's case, a little bit better. In fact, as you know, I'm very high on the Sloan Stevens season. I thought she had a tremendous year, and that's something we will get into later. Um, but I'm just curious because for me, the one of the biggest takeaways from this season was the generational shift. You have the Anisimovas, the Claire Lou's, the Sophia Kennans, the, um, I mean, I would say Danielle Collins, but she's a little bit older, but still players we weren't accustomed to seeing having a full year's worth of success. Full, first full year on tour, right? Exactly. And, and we got to see them have that success. We got to see them play a full season. And, you know, as you mentioned, it's not exactly a disappoint. Oh, disappointing actually might be the right word, but it's not a bad season. It's just we could have expected a little more. I'm just curious. Do you think that drop in wins comes because there are so many younger American women making their breakthrough right now? No, I I think what happened was there was a lot of injuries, um, and I think a few players in particular, Madison Keys, Coco Vandeweghe. Um, Shelby Rogers in particular, some players um, who were in their prime of their career at a good age um, in their mid, early to mid twenties, um, who just didn't produce that well this year. And then some players also not in the top tier, but Warren Davis, Christina McHale, um, they had really disappointing years and just couldn't do, couldn't match what they did last year. So it's not the young players, the emerging players, because those are really exciting as we're looking into 2019 and 2020 in terms of adding to the, the win total and the tournament title total. But it's players like Davis, Mikhail, um, uh, Coco Vandeweghe, uh, Irina Falcone, um, uh, Bar- Barbara Lepchenko, who's a little bit older, who just um, didn't quite uh, measure up to what they could have done. They didn't match what they did last year. All of them, I think, dropped in the ranking somewhat. And or or large a large amount, and uh, uh, I don't know. I don't know if it's a sign of there's you know injuries, other players figuring out their games, um, just down years. Sometimes you just have a down year after a good year, um, or you know if there's something a little bit deeper going on with the American women's tennis. But I'm not worried about the young people, the the people who are just making their marks this year. I think they've got some really bright futures, and I don't think I think this is a little bit of a floor for what we're going to see over the next few years even if Serena and Venus don't uh, continue to have uh, world, you know, all, all-star caliber years ever again. I think the word, the term you just used there, the floor, that's exactly right. And, you know, we can get into our arguments now. I want to start with the honorable mentions before we get into our top 10 list. But to me, the perfect encapsulation of the high American floor player, of someone who didn't, you know, wow the world this year with her results, but still significant progress again but still you know she maintained the course she maintained her position and that's my third honorable mention this is the lowest of the three honorable mentions I have is Allison Risk and Allison Risk she jumps from number 70 to number 62 at the end of the year she goes 28 and 25 wins another 100k title on grass makes the Miami round of 32 in during the year she takes out players like Christiane Arena Falcone she beats Kerber and Muguruza two very good wins and of course you know, the Eugenie, she beats Bouchard during the year as well. And that's its whole separate issue we don't have to get into now. But to me, yeah, but to me, and, you know, hint, hint, we've had this conversation before. I know where you're going to go here. That That's the problem is Allison Risk displayed a level to breakthrough to jump into that top 50, but she just could not get the job done 
in the clutch matches this year? I mean, <laughs> I called 2018 a runner-up year for American women. It was a <laughs> runner-up year for risk in her own matches. Like, she came in second so close. <laughs> and unfortunately, there's only two players playing any given match. So, I mean, <laughs> not very good in tennis. But she had so many matches. Oh, goodness gracious, where she was so close. She had match pointers. It was... Seven six in the third, a buster, or she was up a set and in a second set tiebreaker, and she didn't pull through. Uh, but she's still on my top ten list, so I'm not going to razz her too much about that. I think she still had a, a solid year. But keep going about honorable mentions. <laughs> yeah, well, on the Allison Risk front, I you know I, I completely agree with you, and I wanted to make a pun here. We can call the episode you know high risk, high reward, the 2018 U.S. Women's season. But maybe no, you're not. That's not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was one of the new jokes I wrote for this pod. It's out. Oh, oh dear. Um, yeah, getting back to my honorable mentions, number two on this list, uh, this was a player I got the chance to both interview on the Cracked Interviews podcast, which as always gives you a bump on my rankings list, but more importantly, I got to see her play in Cincinnati. I watched her lose a final round qualifying match. Then one hour later, she's back on the court practicing the things she messed up. This player jumps from number 155 to number 126, but reached a career high of number 102 in July. You know, She goes 25 and 22 on the year, wins the Indian Harbor 60K, and makes the Indian Wells round of 32. The player I'm talking about, of course, is Caroline Dollahide, who... I just think she has the game. She has the pro game. She has the weapons, you know, in terms of movement. It's not it's not where I want it to be, you know, as a finished product, but still she is so young. The serve, the forehand, the aggression. I mean, Jonathan, she plays that classic Chicago indoor tennis. Yeah, that's what I like to hear. It was <laughs> represent. Um, yeah, she's also on my honorable mention list. I think she's fun to watch. She um, is she seems a little bit fearless out there, not all the time, unfortunately, but she plays with with a sense of abandon, um, and she's just one of those eye-popping big hitters that I, you know, that's what I base my tennis fandom on more often than not. <laughs> so, um, and she does have some subtlety to her game as well. She, she does have uh, the ability to throw in a, a slice here and there, and um, she, I saw her in, in uh, on the green clay of, of Charleston, and I... Um, you know, I thought that she clearly has the ability to play on different surfaces as well. Um, it, more of the tour indoors, I think she would have been in the top 100 this year because uh, she definitely does have a scary game for indoors. Uh, um, so, yeah, a big fan. And uh, hopefully, you know, she had a rough end of the year. It just didn't go as much as well as she planned. It could have just been a little bit of exhaustion from playing so much tennis for the first time as a pro. Uh, but, yeah, she's on my honorable mention list, too. Well, I have one more on my honorable mention list, and I think that'll be a fun way to get into our top 10 list. So I want to save her. Are there any other players you want to mention before we really get into it? I want to mention uh, Bernardo Pera, uh, who a lot of players don't know about. She didn't grow up um, with the U.S. flag next to her name. She grew up uh, and actually, I think, for the most part, trains in Croatia. Um, but, uh, you know, we got her, and we're going to celebrate her while we can. Um, she rose up from 128 to 69 this year. I, uh, I think this is where she's at. She had a um, top 10 win against Conte at the Australian Open. She was 27 and 25, played a lot of tennis and played. Uh, she was always a threat, and she's got that nice little fluffy game with also with some power. And obviously, being from Croatia, she has some 
uh, strong ability on clay. So I think she's going to have another solid year this year. Um, uh, so I could put her on my honorable mention list and, you know, maybe she should have been even on my top 10 list, but uh, she didn't quite fit. Well, for Bernarda Paris, she finishes the year ranked number 69. She's the eighth highest ranked American woman. I mean, she certainly deserves credit. Like, as you mentioned, she's still a top 75 player. That is impressive, as as the number indicates. There are only 75 of those in the world, so certainly something to hang your hat on. Sorry. Is this deep thoughts down without Scruffskid? <laughs> How many top 75 players are there? Look, this is take seven. I'm exhausted. I don't know what I'm saying anymore. I'm making it up. <laughs> oh, I love it. Okay. Yeah, no. the top 75, dude. There's only 75 of them. I love it. Okay. Keep going. Look, I would tell you about my extracurricular activities before pods, but my mom listens to every episode, so I can't. <laughs> uh. Oh. <laughs> All right, yes, let's move on. My last honorable mention, someone who probably for the first time in my lifetime, and uh, for some perspective, I'm born 1995. I believe Venus went pro in 97. Yep. Yeah, Venus Williams comes in number 11 on my list. The last cut, a little stats, some stats about her. She started the year ranked number five. Obviously, that was unsustainable, not because Venus Williams is an incredible player, but to expect her to carry the sort of match load to be a top five presence, you know, given the fact that she has Sojourn's disease, given the fact that she, I believe she's 37, 38 years old. It's just an unrealistic expectation. Still, she finishes the year at number 38, goes 17 and 11 overall had a really great hardcore run I, I think we litigated this last time as well it's called the sunshine double or something making the indian wells semi-final miami quarterfinal during that run she beat serena kirstea sevastova suarez navarro bertens kanta and this time i'm gonna get it right georgie um but you know in terms of no, you still got it wrong no, this is no. This one was Georgie. She did not play. Uh, I I don't know. Either way, maybe that's another Westoff cue the siren. But in terms of her, oh, maybe worst... it was. no, you're right. It was. <laughs> Give me an applause then. Never mind. Um, but in terms of Venus for the worst losses. You have, you know, she loses to Benchich, who is coming back from injury still in the first round of the Australian Open, loses to Daniel Collins in the Miami quarterfinal, loses to Wong, French Open first round, loses to Sakari, San Jose quarterfinal. I just think it's unrealistic to expect her to display a top, you know, 10 level every time she plays on every time she hits the court now and just in the in the range of all of these players who had these seasons I think Venus not that she declined but still only 28 matches that wasn't enough tennis for me to bump her up in my list and I, I just think that some of the jumps these younger players made this year a little bit more impressive than Venus sustaining what is still a top 40 game. I mean, when Venus is on, she could play with anyone. So, of course, you know, she's still so impressive. But I, I think it's okay to leave her out of my top 10. I think it's okay for you to leave her out of your top 10. I did not leave her out of my top 10. Well, <laughs> why not? What do we get yeah, that's why we're a good duo. Like I said, that's that's why I, I I may have even known that you didn't leave her out of your top ten, and that's why I didn't want to. <laughs> People are gonna listen to that and be like, "God, I want to hear this first pot. It sounds way I better do. than this one." Uh, can you imagine? <laughs> uh, I must be so nice to do a listen to that. Which one uh, I will. On a side note, I called my CIA guy, and he he was like, "What?" 
Like, really? <laughs> this is a question you're gonna ask. This is the one favor. Anything in the world, the one favor you're gonna ask is the central intelligence agency's audio expert. Podcast. Okay. No, he right, goes. Let's get to it. Yeah, he goes, is that the guy who quit Twitter after the election? And I was like, yeah, that just <laughs> oh, oh, we're about to get into it. Okay, okay. Oh, my God, Alex. Uh, I got so much shit for coming back after that, but I'm glad I did. I wouldn't be here if I had to. Oh, absolutely. Like I said, you're a must-follow on tennis Twitter. Um, but, okay, let's get into our number 10 list. As I mentioned before, I was raised well by my parents. They taught me always let the guests go first. So, Jonathan, your number 10 season from in 2018 from the American Women goes to? Allison Risk. Tanya Pittsburgh, <laughs> aforementioned. She barely beat out Bernardo Pera, uh, who I had. Um, I would switched them back and forth a bunch of times, but I kept her in there. Um, yes, she had the tragic losses, which I will mention. The seven match points in Shertogan Bosch to Coco Vandaway. The two match points on serve against Pushkova in Tokyo. Uh, the 7-6 in the third to Wang Yafan in Miami. The 7-6 in the third to Daniel Collins in Victory Qualies. Benchage at Wimbledon. 7-5 in the third against Christie at the U.S. Open. And then Halep, she was up a set, although she lost 1-1 one one in her last two sets. But still, I mean, she took a set from Halep. At Roland Garros. So she's got so much talent. Her strokes are unorthodox, as we've mentioned. But the thing about Risk is that she, she'll she go for her shots so well. And and, and then when one, it gets to, One might even call her a high-risk player. Sorry, I had to try again. Ah, give it up. Give it up. <laughs> so, but then you just get this sense. And you, it's been this way for her entire career that right when things get really, really tight and she thinks about it just a little too much, then she just starts missing and, and she just overhits or she pulls up on her forehand or whatever. And, and just the, I, you never would call her forehand fluid, but the fluidity of motion is just, it just kind of disappears and it's rough to watch. That said, she got to a WTA final, which is more than anybody else on my honorable mention list. So I think that was, that was good. Um, and uh, she she had a winning record, 28 and 25 for the years. And uh, she made it to the, the that Fed Cup team, and she had a she had a solid match um, there, although she lost in straights, I believe. But um, yeah, I still had her just high enough to go number ten. I think all that's fair. Another thing I would point out, like you mentioned, the set she took off of Halep at Roland Garros, she has a grass title this year as well. Her game translates well to. For risk, the title of the uh, ITF level. Yeah, but uh, yeah, exactly. You're right. Not not a WTA title, but still a, a, a title nonetheless. And it's a hundred k. You know, you're going to get players ranked seventy five to one fifty in tournaments like that. She, her game just translates well to all of these surfaces, as you mentioned. She's not afraid to take chances on the court. I almost said the pun again, but I didn't. Uh, I, I I don't think that's a bad choice. You know, she was in my honorable mention for a reason, so I totally agree with you. However, for me, my number ten season goes to Whitney Osegway. The sixteen-year-old had a phenomenal year. She jumps from one thousand one hundred twenty-one in the rankings to number two hundred three uh, in terms of doubles. She was unranked to start the year, and she jumped all the way to number two thirty-seven in the world. As we mentioned earlier, that means she's one of the top two hundred thirty-seven players in the world in doubles. Pretty impressive for a sixteen-year-old. Who I will also mention: Whitney was born April seventeenth, two thousand two. That is eight days before my little brother. 
that is just I mean I I've adored Nicky since he was born and I cannot even begin to imagine seeing him playing on any sort of professional anything. It would just it's oh, it's not <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what are you saying? I no, mean I, if somebody that that age as a professional anything. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, yeah, I thought he meant saying, in his life doing anything professionally. <laughs> well, that too, but that's a conversation for another time. Uh, but just for some perspective, while Whitney was building her way to number 203 in the world, Nicholas Gruskin was taking the ACT this weekend. So just to, again, to wow. show you that's, that's where she could be, and instead she's number 203 in the world. That is phenomenal. 34 and 15 on the year, 19 and 9 in uh, 34 and 15 in singles, 19 and 9 in doubles. She won the Tyler 80K in singles, two doubles title, one in Orlando, one in Jackson. In terms of her best wins, she beat a lot of, not necessarily her contemporaries age-wise, but still she beat you know, Swan, she beat Christiane, uh, Asia Mohammed, Jamie Loeb, Mikhail, McNally, Benchich, Brody. Players who, if she wants to jump into the top 100, those are the type of players she has to beat. Um, now, on the last pod, I mentioned she had bad losses to Sharma and Carter, who are both you know, two of the best players in women's college tennis history, and you made the point to correct me, and you were right about that. Still, the reason I have those as bad losses is it shows she's still not ready to break through the top 100, but I watched her match with Sophia Kennan at Midland on YouTube, and... I mean, just the weapon. There's nothing she can't do. She she really. I mean, uh, she still makes some poor decisions, but in terms of what she's capable on on the court, the uh, the upside's tremendous. Good serve for her size. Also, she's not the biggest girl out there. Great, um, but she can get some pop on her on her first serve, which I think is uh, you know it's really. I think it's going to be increasingly important in the women's game um, in the coming years. So I think she's really well positioned for that. Um, you know, I still. She uh, was junior world champion in 2017, so we already knew that she had a lot of game. Um, but she and she's still very young. But you know, I I thought that her development was um, okay throughout the year, and then only at the end of the year did she really sort of make that jump. And I get a little bit suspicious of jumps that are made at the end of the year because so many players have put so much tennis and are a little bit tired and you can just sort of like sneak out with nothing against what she accomplished by winning Tyler and uh, sneaking, not sneaking, but um, getting that Australian Open wildcard over Levchenko was huge. And then she beat Levchenko head-to-head in the match in Houston that uh, was basically to decide it in three sets coming from a set down. So that shows some of her mental toughness, which I think is another big asset that she has. Um can I can I just quickly add on that mental toughness note? You talk about after t- winning Tyler, she comes back, plays Houston a couple weeks later, has to go through qualifying despite winning the week before. You're right. That takes a certain level of mental toughness to know I'm going to have to grind out another qualities event just to get myself in a position to, as you mentioned, compete against the player who I'm closest with for this Australian Open wildcard. Then she beats Lepchenko in three sets. Yes, it's an end-of-the-year result. If we've learned anything, you know, Jack Sock, Karen Kachanov are winning Paris Masters titles. Anything can happen at the end of the year. Um, But 
you, it takes a certain level of me- mental toughness to stay fit throughout. It also helps that she can't play that many tournaments in terms of keeping her body fresh. But still, it, it well, matters. she can still play a lot of tournaments, but she can't play WTA tournaments. So she can still play a full complement of ITF or junior tournaments, um, honestly, if she wants. <laughs> For the next couple of years, which is, again, a little bit nutty that she could still be playing. If she wanted to, the U.S. Open juniors, in 2019 and uh, in 2020, I think. Even beyond that, she could play San Diego. She could get a wild card. It probably behooves of her to do that. Well, at the rate she's going, if she continues, I assume she's going to move back in, well into the top 200. Um, by the time the U.S. Open runs around, I think they'll probably give her a wild card anyway, given her using her <laughs> to accomplish that. <laughs> Very fair point. All right, I mean, that's, you know, I was a little upset Whitney didn't even make your honorable mentions in take two of this pod, but. I'll let it slide. She is my number 10. Let's move on to number nine. Who do you got? Uh, just, let me just, in my own defense, I <laughs> have eight other players in my honorable mentions, but I was trying to keep things tight. So I also have Osigwe, Nola Hyde, Claire Liu, Coco Goff in my honorable mentions, which after today, maybe I should have put her in my top 10 because um, she won- <laughs> we'll talk about that a little bit, but she won the Orange Bowl today. Um, Nicole Melikar, uh, Lauren Davis, Allie Kipnick, and... Um, Bethany Maddox-Sands are all, also in my honorable mentions. Allie Kick, uh, in particular, always, I should have mentioned her as well. That, uh, that's, you can, for her to come back from the things she has and just to show the level of success, I believe she's in the top 150 now, maybe even a, 161 uh, to end the year. Just so impressive. And then, again, for Bethany Maddox-Sands to come back from injury is it's always something. So I'm, I'm glad you got to mention those players right there. But, okay, moving on, number nine. For you, Jonathan, Coco Vandeweghe. Give me a case. <laughs> Coco Vandeweghe, the Jack Sock of uh, women's <laughs> She had an outstanding 2017, got to the top 10 in the world, almost single-handedly won Fed Cup, which was a huge issue, a uh, huge goal of hers, um, very proudly representing the red, white, and blue. She got to the semifinals. Uh, I think two majors last year. It was out. Nothing went bad for her. And then this year, she dropped out of the top. Finished the year out of the top hundred. She won ten matches all year long, which is just a couple more than Jack Stock. She um, went two and nine on hard courts, and yet she's in my top ten because number one, she won that double slam, which uh, for somebody who uh, cares about doubles as much as she does and loves being on a team. It was just, it was a really neat moment. And the, the, the best thing about that is that she has, as you may know, a lot of haters. <laughs> she, nope, she talks about it openly. <laughs> she has a lot of haters in the world um, and particularly on social media and the player that she played with and had this connection with and just um, really, really clicked with is one of the most beloved players in all, all of social media tennis. Ashley Barty. So the fact that those two, almost like when, when Jack Sockin and uh, Vasek Pasasil were winning one Wimbledon, like a lot of people don't like Jack. A lot of people on social media don't like Jack, but nobody doesn't like Pasasil. He's the nicest guy. So um, <laughs> that connection and then winning, that that was just too cool. And then she also got a win over Simona Halep when she was the only U.S. player, I believe, to do that. And she reached uh, a final on her worst surface. <laughs> Uh, at the WTA level in the premier tournament. And uh, she also got to a semifinal. So that's why she was in my number nine, number nine spot. 
No, I, I, I think that's a fair, and I should say I have her number eight on my list. And when we first recorded this, it was on December 6th, which I believe was her birthday. So happy belated birthday to you, Coco. Um, I mean, I have her there for all the reasons you mentioned. Sure, she drops from number 10 to number 102 in singles, but she rises from number 62 to number 14 in doubles. Yes, 10 and 17 in singles, but 15 and 9 in doubles with, as you mentioned, the Miami Open title and the U.S. Open title. Um, in singles, she makes the Stuttgart final. She makes the semifinal in her, uh, I don't know how to pronounce it, but I believe it's in the Netherlands. Um, um, she beats Sloane Stevens and Simona Halep and Garcia all in the same year. It just demonstrates the fact that she is so remarkably talented. But then still, the 13 first-round losses, it's... It, 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 it's too much because just like with the men's side, the perfect comparison is the Jack Sock season. I put Jack Sock in my top 10 simply because he had the success he did on dub, in doubles and for Coco. You can't ignore that. When you're taking silver linings from the year, one of the things you'll remember is, sure, Coco struggled in singles terribly, but she did get, get the Grand Slam title because, you know, I value Grand Slam titles as much as I do, and I'm a huge doubles snob. Although, I should say, who did I forget who won the mixed doubles title who wasn't on my list? You forgot Nicole Millicar. Who was on your honorable mentions. It's why, again, we're the perfect duo for this. You fill in the gaps. Um, it, it's enough for me to to put her in my top 10. That, that's a significant accomplishment. And again, you know, a 10-17 and 17 record, you only have 10 singles wins to defend. That is not a lot of points. If she can get into a couple tournaments in Australia, hopefully make the main draw there, win a couple of matches. There's no reason she can't rise right back up the rankings because it's a blank slate for her. Yep, exactly. Yeah, I mean, she also was carrying an injury, and um, but I don't think you'll, you'll find, I don't think you can find one person um, who knows anything about tennis who doesn't expect her to get into the uh, top 100 relatively soon into 2019. Um, whether she stays there through the entire year, given how much she has to defend in April in Stuttgart, who knows, but um, she'll almost certainly finish 2019 higher than she started assuming, assuming good health. Quick tangent, who ends 2019 ranked higher in singles, Sock or Vandaway? Oh, that's such a good good question. Oh, I almost want to make that like um, uh, a poll. Cause, you, oh, uh, I, I like steal that. that. That's a really good poll. I'm going to steal it. Or you no, 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 no. I was going to say, consider that my gift to you after yesterday. <laughs> okay, we're going to have to go a little bit more than that. But, um, yeah, I would say, ooh, um, I'm going to say Coco Vandewa is going to finish higher than Jack Sock. And actually, since I did my rankings, let me just cheat and see who I said would do it earlier. Um, so I didn't pick my where they would end up rankings-wise for women just for men. So um, I picked her... Oh, you know what? No, I didn't pick her to finish in the top 50, and I did pick Saatchi, so... Wow! I mean... That's so weird. I feel like the problem with Sock is if he you know, doesn't do well in Australia early early in the year, the bottom could really fall out. I just don't see him as the type of guy who's going to go to challengers across the world and play just as many events and grind through. Um, and hopefully I'm wrong, but if you're going to take Sock... Yeah, see, I, I'll take Coco. I, dis, I disagree. I think, yeah, I'm going to take Sock, and, um, you know, I'll, I'll probably go down... He's bought me on Twitter, but I'll probably go down in history as, as Jack's <laughs> last supporter... But um, I, 
I, I do think that he will be willing to play challengers if necessary. He played in qualies earlier this year when he, he had to. Um, and, and even though he's taken a, wild, a lot of wild cards in his career, he's also made challengers and he's played um, and he's played qualies. I don't, he's not someone, I think, who, who avoids that kind of challenge. And uh, if you listen to uh, John Wertheim's interview with, with Mike Bryan, he talked a lot about Jack in his interview. And, uh, you know, he, he definitely doesn't have the same kind of work ethic as some of the other guys out there. But he's not someone who, who shies away from a challenge. And he's also not someone who doesn't know when he's got work to do or a certain area that he needs to improve it. So whether he does it or not, I don't know. But I, I do see him finishing in the top 50. Well, Coco... Uh, oh, I'm gonna say I'm gonna stick with Jack. All right, that's fair. We'll bet a, a glass of whole milk on it. I'm in. But number nine for me, getting back to the lists, I have Taylor Townsend. And you know, for people who don't know about Taylor, she's former World Junior number one uh, lefty. Really unique game in the way she serves and volleys. Loves to move forward. Loves to play slice. Loves to play different angles. In terms of her season, she she rises from 95 to 91, but she hit a career high of 61 in July. She ends the year 29 and 15 with three singles titles. Uh, she wins an 80k in Dothan and Charleston, and then it's and she wins the Sumter 25k. She's got the one doubles title, Indian Wells Challenger title. She makes the French Open, Wimbledon, U.S. Open second round. Why I have her on this list, and you know the second round is nothing to write home about, but still. When you can consistently get wins at slams, that's a jump to me. And we hadn't seen that from Taylor before. And I just really like the way her game is coming along. And she has a long history. You know, she got into a fight with the USTA about because they were very harsh on her about her conditioning. And her conditioning isn't spectacular yet. But she has certainly gotten better. She has such command on the court. She knows exactly what she wants to do. She wants to work her opponents around and... You know, I get frustrated because she plays the moon ball too often. She plays the backhand slice a little bit too often, and she allows herself to get on the defense. But still, she's got all of the skills, and I, I could see a big jump from her in 2019. Yeah. Oh, yeah, me too. Uh, if she can get through the first part of the year, because, again, all, all of her points basically come from the first half of the year, and particularly and weirdly on green clay, which she is – uh, if there were a green play major, she would be in my one of my picks to as a possible champion. She has <laughs> stunning results on green clay and really struggles in a lot of other surfaces. And the other places she struggles, and the reason I didn't put her in my top 10 list, is that she struggles outside the United States. Um, I think she had only a handful of wins in places that were not, in particular the Southeast United States, but in the United States in general. And I don't know if that's an issue with her traveling and not, not enjoying travel and not enjoying overseas travel, um, or if it's something else. But it's something that she's going to have to solve real fast if she wants to be on the WTA main tour for her career, because there are only so many... The women have so many fewer opportunities to play small tournaments in the USA. There's only... I think we've talked there's only one international level tournament in the continental United States. And, um, which is weird for, for the WTA tour, which started pretty much as a U.S. based indoor uh, <laughs> tennis tour. 
It's not that anymore by any stretch of the imagination. I will add that she only played one full match after the U.S. Open, after her loss to Ossipenko in three sets, after beating Amanda Anisimova, which was a huge win, um, given what Anisimova's form was. But she only played one full match. Um, that was in a 60K in California. And then she retired uh, down a set and three love to Karatincheva and... Uh, in September wasn't seen after that. So um, let's hope that her, her health is good. Um, but yeah, there's no reason that she can't be a top 50 player for, I mean, she's still only 22 years old and she's another April birthday, April 16th. So shout out to my Aries. Um, <laughs> it, there's no reason that she can't be a top 50 player for many years to come. Again, staying healthy and learning coming into her game because her game is unique. She has a lot of weapons. She has, she, I've mentioned her like sort of like the Donald Young from Chicago. Uh, Donald Young Sr., I believe, was her, or is her coach. Um, and ability to, to um, thrive on grass like, like Young is. Um, but where Young is completely able to perform on clay, she's a decent clay player. Um, but she has more power relative to other women than, than Young does. So, um, yeah, I I wish her well, and I think she's going to be great in 20, 2019. I completely agree with you. She's another player, maybe an honorable mention for you. I believe she's not on your list. Yeah, she's just an asterisk. I didn't I didn't feel confident putting her even as an honorable mention, even though she had her break kind of a breakthrough year, just because sure. it felt like an incomplete season. I, I agree with that. And that that's really the thing with Taylor Townsend is the talent is so obvious. And I think that's why I continue to be so high on her upside because, as we mentioned, she's not very old. Uh, she's got plenty of time still to hit her physical prime, and it will be interesting to watch her progress through 2019. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, my number eight was Coco Vandaway. We've talked about her. Jonathan, who do you have at number eight? I have Venus Williams. <laughs> All right, let's get into it. How did Venus make your top 10? Uh, hard work. She <laughs> earned it. She, she um, had a winning record for the year. She had a win over Serena Williams, which is pretty darn good. She um 17 and 11, I think, for the year. She stayed in the top 40, even though she's almost 40. And anytime that you can, your range, your age and your ranking can be anywhere near each other, it's pretty impressive. It doesn't happen to very many players. Um, if she's able to do that at 75, would be even more impressive. But in her late 30s, to be ranked 39 or wherever she is right now, um, I just think you can't be overlooked. And her willpower, her her desire to continue to compete, um, her ability to compete. And still uh, impress. Um, yeah, she's gonna as long as she continues to play, and we have no idea how long that's gonna be, and can, can continue to get wins over Johanna Conta and Serena Williams and Kiki Burtons, then I'm gonna continue to put her on my list. I think I'm gonna give you a list of players, and I and I want you to give me the order by which they retire. Venus, Serena, Roger, Rafa. Give me the list. Okay. Uh, so I think they're all going to stay through the 2020 Olympics. Um, so I think we've got them in both for at least another year and a half. 
Um, I think that, I mean, players are going to retire when they're going to retire. One, uh, one of those players may decide to call it Leighton Hewitt or unfortunately never to love and stay play, playing doubles. Who knows? Also, on, on the theme of doubles, throw the Bryans on there as well. Oh, okay. Okay, so this is just completely pulling out of my ass, but I'm going <laughs> to say, and I think the Bryans will also probably stick around at least through 2019 and probably into 2020 because they'll, they'll probably be able to qualify for the Olympics assuming they have a decent year. But I'm going to say... Um, Roger's going to retire first, then Venus, then Serena. No, sorry, Roger, then Venus, then both Bryans together. Um, unless there's some way that Bob can pick up another, another Jack Sock. Hint, hint. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, although I will say that given that Bob Bryan, as uh, one of our past podcasts will attest to, Bob Bryan does have something that Mike Bryan will never have, which is an NCAA singles champion. <laughs> I don't feel bad for Mike having a couple more majors and titles. Hey, we see number one. Uh, um, so then I'll go Serena, number five, and then Rafa last. I think Rafa's going to stick around as long as he's still a kid winning uh, Roland Garros's. <laughs> My pitch to the ATP is this, if you're listening. Have them, you know, try and plan it to where they're all retiring at the end of the 2020 season. You've got the Olympics that year and that year with a co-ed Laver Cup. And I want both Williams. I want Federer on his last legs. Give me the Bryants. Give me all of this retiring generation. Maybe even bring back Ferrer because he belongs in that conversation as well. And just let all of these Titans go out on the same court together. I've heard a rumor. I've heard a rumor, and I'm about as well sourced as no one. I mean, I've I've got nothing, and but I heard one, and I heard Roger might be done at the end of this year. Really? I mean, it makes sense. He's the, the decline is real. This was an uh, you know we we can get back into our our list, but I think the decline for Roger is real. Uh, your case for Venus, I mean, for anyone to achieve what she did at her age, given the fact that again she she's playing with a disease, and it's not like this disease is you know killing her, but still it's it's not easy, and it's fair. She she deserves to be in. The, I mean, it's totally reasonable. I can see why you have her at number eight. Getting to number seven. The thing about Roger, though, is that he would almost have to announce it in January. That's and true. Because there's so much pay to be made from a retirement tour for him. He would need to say, this is the last time I'm playing the Australia. I, I, and he's the only player I can think of in history who needs that because there's no other player who can match his um, fandom. And I think his fans would be so hurt if they didn't they knew that they had a chance to go to his last match in their tournament and didn't go. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't think – I could be wrong, but I think he's just no. also too hyper-aware of that fact about himself. No, that's fair. I, I, I think that's that's a good point, and the appearance fees would just be remarkable. He was... <laughs> yeah, he he's also very aware of his uh, – that he can end up being the richest, you know, the richest on Amazon owning <laughs> – I mean, the 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 plus side of him over Tiger Woods is Roger never got divorced, and so yeah, he he's gonna out he he's gonna have so much money, and it's going to be remarkable. Um, all right though. Yeah, and the other the other the last thing I'll say about 2020 is that a there's also a lot of money to be made off the Olympics, and b 
when we're talking about Labor Cup, I mean, I know he can continue to play Labor Cup however long he wants, but I think that Labor Cup really could use another two years with him as a, as a player, uh, as an ATP player. No, totally fair. And then three about 2020. Um, you know, I'm no Nate Silver, but I'd say there's about a 3% chance that you're off Twitter by the end of the year. <laughs> maybe if Roger Federer runs for president I'm sure that uh, okay yes please number seven give me your number seven I've got Sonia or uh, Sophia Kennan as my number seven pick um, and I believe you have her higher but uh, I was going to say so I I have her number three so let's get into this debate I'm in. I'm in. Before we take our break, and we should tell our listeners again, we're going to divide this into two episodes, do 10 through 6 and the honorable mentions on this half, and then after number 6, we'll come back and do our top 5. And trivia. Yeah, and, and trivia and some other fun predictions. and that You'll want to stick around for both parts, but please give me your case for Sophia Kennan. Okay. Um, I guess the case is why isn't she higher? Because obviously... Uh, she finished the year at what, as number what five American, I think. Um, she ended the year number six, number fifty-two, number six overall. Yeah, she had a huge jump. Got to the top hundred, ended at fifty-two. Um, had a stellar two two stellar losses, you would almost say, in the <laughs> Fed Cup final. But but leapfrogged Daniel Collins as the top pick after some other players didn't play. She had wins over. Um, Carlene Garcia, Yulia uh, Gurgis. She went nine and two against her compatriots in the United States, and um, she reached two WTA semifinals. It was a sensational year, and she didn't really seem at all tired by the end of the year. She's clearly in good shape. She's got a backhand that just is eye popping sometimes, and is a weapon against pretty much anybody on tour. Um, and she just also has a fight about her, an inner fire that is definitely going to serve her well um, going into the uh, early part of her 20s. So I, I want to get into why I have Sophia Kennan higher without giving away too much of my list. Uh, you look at Sophia Kennan, she jumps this year from number 108 to number 52. I think the hardest jump to make for a young player is to go from the top 100 to the top 50. If I had to compare Kennan's year to a, a male equivalent, I would say it's pretty similar to Taylor Fritz, right? Fritz on the outside, he, he'd never played a full WTA or ATP, and the equivalent for Kennan is a full WTA season before. Um, for Kennan, she wins a 60K in Berkeley, similar to how Fritz wins. I, it was it was either Newport Beach or the Indian Wells Challenger early in the year. Uh, both make a couple semifinals at the higher level, and then both uh, make the U.S. Open third round. Um, I just think the jump Kennan showed, the floor from her, as you mentioned, the backhand is elite. I just think that's one thing she does so well on the court. She's not afraid to take it down the line. She's not afraid to take it early and hard cross-court. You know, I don't love her serve. Uh, obviously, she's a smaller player, and I think her second serve really sits up. But her aggression, uh, it's just, it's contagious. You you love the, to see the way she played, and you look at some of her wins this year. She beat Lepchenko, Vickery, Claire Osegwe, uh, Nicole Gibbs. Uh, she beat Monica Puy. She beat... Uh, 
Georges, not Georgie. Uh, she beat Garcia. She beat Nicolescu. She just had a lot of quality wins. And again, it, it, it's, it's like sim- eight. Eight top 50 wins, I think. Yeah, which is outstanding. And, you know, the thing you hold against Kennan, she had 12 first-round losses or losses in qualifying from her season. You know, she flips a couple of those, and she is looking into the top 50 and beyond. I just think that jump she made from 108 to 50, uh, to 52, I value that more than, say, an Anisimova who went from the top 200 to right around 100, or an Oseg- uh, Osegway who went from 1,000 to the top 200. I just think it's so hard to get into that top 50 because, again, profound take for you, but there are only 50 players in the top 50, and for 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 Kennan to establish that, that level. every single ranking, every <laughs> yeah. single ranking marker. It's the top, top yeah. thirty-two. There's not that many players in it. <laughs> Some people think. Some people think there's only like. Some people think there's like. Oh, there's 100 players in the top 32. No. <laughs> well, I just think people are idiots. Like they really are, and like they're like, oh, I, I've seen you uh, seated at a slam before. You must be a top 30 player. It's like no. There's actually six withdrawals, and it's just like you have you have to understand the context. And I, I know you're obviously teasing me, which I appreciate. But I, what I'm trying to say is that jump from Kennan to establish herself around 52 it's value it's so valuable and because now you know it's the opposite of a Coco Vandeway Sophia Kennan is going to get into whatever event she wants for at least the first six months of the 2019 season and you know tennis progress you might have been the one who said this it's or maybe it was Ben Rothenberg when he came on the last great shot podcast which if you haven't go listen to that as well you know, tennis progress, it's not exactly linear from players, but in terms of the linear progress from Kennan, she's marking off all of the boxes. It's a solid, you know, 2x slope. You know, she's she's every two steps forward for one step back. And she's doing it uh, pretty much on every surface. And she's what's really good about uh, her 2018, and will, I think, do well for her in 2019, is that she's spread out her points during the year. So she got to a quarter in the first tournament of the year in Auckland, which took a set off of Wozniacki in that, um, which I, I didn't remember until just looking at it now, before losing to Gerges in the first round of the Australian Open. So that was good to start the year. And then she got to the third round of Miami, qualified for and got to the third round beating Kasatkina and taking a set off of Kvitova. She got to... Um, she didn't do great on, on clay, and I think that is going to be an issue. But, you know, who did she lose to? She lost to Kaya Kanepi, Samantha Stoser, Naomi Osaka. I mean, those are not easy matches <laughs> in any stretch of the imagination on clay. And then she got to the semis of the grass tournament. She won a hardcore 60K she, um, in the summer. And then she had that brilliant stretch where she got to the third round of the U.S. Open, beating Sakari and taking Pushkova to a a tie break in the second in the second set, and then getting the semifinals of Quebec City, and then um, at the end of the year she she didn't have a huge number of wins in Asia, but she was still she took a set off the of Sabalenka. She uh, had those two year end Fed Cup three set thrillers um, that showed her fighting spirit. So um, yeah, I I have no issue with you putting her anyone from three to seven to me is pretty pretty tight. I think we have a lot of uh, overlap with one big exception there, but uh, yeah, she had a wonderful season and kind of a quiet season until the very end where she had those high-profile high profile cup matches. 
So we'll leave the Kennan argument here, but I'm just curious. Who do you think has the better 2019 season? Sophia Kennan or Danielle Collins? Who at this point is the more refined product? Who's ready to go on tour? Um, well, I, I mean, I really think Catherine Rinaldi is um, an underrated tennis coach. She really is. She's outstanding. Yeah, um, I think that I would like to see her as, as Davis Cup coach, and I'm sure nobody's going to listen to me, but I think that she could uh, do well with the U.S. men's team. They don't have to pick, you know, a former top five player or whatever they're going to pick. They could easily pick someone whose main focus is on these national competitions, and she knows who to plug in and what situations. And the fact that she chose uh, Sony Cannon to play over Danielle Collins tells me that Collins ended the year was um, not complete fluke. I think that Collins is going to struggle in 2019, and I think Sonya's going to finish the year ahead of her. Now I say that now, let me look at what I predicted uh, earlier because it could just be uh, uh, <laughs> making this up. But I had Kennan uh, finishing, yeah, yeah, way way ahead of Collins. I think she's going to have a stronger 2019. What do you think? Uh, no, I, I like the consistency. It's... Uh... You know, I'm going to save my thoughts on Danielle Collins because I know she's coming up later on your list and my list as well. Uh, So I promise we will get back to that argument. But number seven for me, this was my favorite take on my list. I think this is the one place I stumped you, is I have Katie McNally and now Coco Goff. That was a suggestion from you from Pod 1 tied at number seven on my list and the reason I do I want to talk about McNally first and then I want to give you the chance to talk about Goff because I, I just think you followed her a little bit closer than I did for McNally you know pro tour wise she goes uh, from 734 to 440 in singles uh, she goes 18 and 9 in singles but 22 and 7 in doubles you know in terms of the pro success again she has three ITF doubles titles she wins the Lawrence 25k singles title And then on the junior circuit, maybe even more impressively, she wins the junior French Open and the junior U.S. Open doubles title. Uh, She makes the finals of the Wimbledon doubles, and she makes the finals of the French Open in singles, where I think she lost either Goff or Osegue. Was it Goff? At the French Open? Yeah, McNally lost to Goff, right? right? Yeah, and so not a bad loss. That's why I have them both on this list. I just think for Katie McNally— you see all of the skills. I mean, there's nothing on a tennis court she can't do in terms of producing shots, the different things. And you have to wonder, her brother John, uh, another Cracked Interviews guest who I'm, who I'm fond of, another guy who <laughs> I have a great story about that we can get into another time. This pod's long enough as is. Um, I just The college, is, I'm sure she's allured by the opportunity to go to college because she's seen how much fun her brother is having. That being said, I think she's ready for the pro tour. I love her game. Wow. Okay. Um, I don't think it's fair to put the years that, that McNally and, and Goff had on the same pedestal. Goff is finishing the year. It was a number one junior. She just won the Orange Bowl today. She won a major in singles and in doubles. And she's 14 years old. She's 14. That's nuts. That's that's younger than my little brother. For those who are keeping track. <laughs> okay, so this this podcast is called All About Alex's Little Brother, and uh, <laughs> no, but literally, like she, it's, she's a she's the first American since the Williams sisters to be able to like 
have everybody in the tennis world stop and say, wow, something there's something unique on the horizon. We, we've had top five, top ten players since the Williams sisters came aboard, but we have not had somebody who you look at and said, um, this could be a game changer. And I think that's what you're having with Coco. And the fact that she was able to do all of these things at two years, three years younger than the players that she was playing against um, and, and show that, that level of fire, like I've mentioned, and her focus, just her intense focus. And um, she has a hatred of losing, I think, the rivals, the rival Serena's. And that's pretty, pretty impressive. And she also just loves playing tennis, and she gets along with everybody. Maybe, and maybe that's going to be the one thing that stops her. Like she doesn't, uh, she doesn't hate all of her opponents. Like maybe some of the best of all times train themselves to do. But uh, yeah, she uh, she's really special. And, and her year was, um, you know, she didn't do it on the pro level. But again, she can only play a couple of matches. <laughs> you know, she can only uh, dream of playing a couple of matches. So. Um, yeah, so I have to put – I can totally see putting uh, Goff in your top ten. I can't quite see putting McAlley on her top ten, even though she's a, a very fun player and she's got a, a great future, I think, as well. Uh, I think that's fair. And I, I lied to you earlier, Jonathan. I think this is where we're going to leave part one because there's a lot of overlap in our top six. We, I think that's a good place where we can – keep going in the debate so I want to ask you one more question and then again we we will take a quick break and we will be back with you for part two later on this week but my question to you I have McNally and Goff number seven obviously above Venus Williams someone we talked about earlier and I think this is a good place to debate the merits of this list just subjectively you know you it's hard to say, oh, I'd rather do this than this and, and prove it quantifiably. But I'm just asking you, Jonathan Kelly, whose season would you rather have had in 2018? Would you have rather had Katie McNally's, Coco Goff's, or Venus Williams? Absolutely, I would have rather have had Coco Goff's. Would I have rather have had uh, Katie McNally's or Venus Williams? Um, I, would, I guess I would say... Oh, man. This is what I'm saying. This is why these lists are hard. And for me, I want those doubles grand slams. So that's why I think it's justifiable to have McNally above Venus. Junior yeah, but- double slams are great. <laughs> They're not, they don't have the same cachet as pro double slams. And which is weird to say because almost all <laughs> of the top players play doubles. And you say, I'm profound. You say I'm profound. A junior double slam it. <laughs> no, I'm saying they don't have the same cachet relative to uh, to uh, junior singles slams. Not that they don't have the same cachet of, of anything, but I don't think, like, if you just look at the list, this is going to sound really unfortunate, we would to juniors, but if you look at the list of doubles grand slam champions in the juniors, you are going to see some players who not only didn't do anything else at the junior level, never made the pros. Some players who were just completely left in because they had a fantastic partner. And I'm not saying that that's the case for Katie because she she clearly got to a a singles slam final. Um, But she also played with Coco Goff in one of them and with Edith Swiatek uh, in the other. And both of those are phenomenal top 10 junior girls players. So I just don't think we can 
say that, oh, just because you win a junior grand slam in doubles that you are automatically uh, anywhere near a top 10 of all female <laughs> players in a given year. Sure. And that seems harsh, but that's how I feel. No, that's so fair. I'd rather I... have had Venus's year than, than Katie's year, but uh, so, um, yeah. That's but 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 you would say you'd take Coco over Venus? I would, yeah, because she did win a, a, a single slam. Coco and Goff, we and should say, finished, not Vandaway. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, I would have rather had my year than Coco's year, and that did not <laughs> say a lot. Um, Coco Vandaway's year. But, yeah, I think Coco Goff uh, finishing the year number one um, at 14 years old. And, and that's the other thing, the age at which she's doing this. And the age... And I'd say the age of which Venus is doing what she did puts her a little bit above Tina Valley as well because she's doing it at an age when every single other person in the top at least at least 300, if not all of the rankings, um, is younger than her. No, totally fair. Um, again, I think that speaks. I will take that as validating, uh, validating, validating, validating my list because I have Goff ahead of Venus, and you're saying that's okay. So I feel okay putting the duo of McNally and Goff at number seven. To recap, before we go, we went through our honorable mentions, but so far I have Whitney Osegway number ten. Jonathan has Allison Risk. Taylor Townsend, number nine for me. Coco Vandeweghe, number nine for Jonathan. Coco Vandeweghe, eight for me. Venus Williams, eight for Jonathan. Katie McNally and Coco Goff, tied for seven. Sophia Cannon, number seven for Jonathan. Um, it is, again, a lot of these names are interchangeable, especially as we keep moving forward. I think spots two through six, you could really name any of the players, and then number one is the most definitive. If you want to hear that conversation, you will have to listen to part two of this podcast. Jonathan, I'm going to ask you to stick around for just a little bit longer. It seems like we are doing well on the recording front, that this will be the podcast that gets released to the public, so help me God, but, uh, you know... <laughs> yeah, please. But a uh, huge shout out to Max Fligner, Daniel Westoff. I, I don't think you should limit it to God. I think any <laughs> any deity, good or evil, you need to you need to ask for help on this one. To the Lord of Cocos, please allow our conversation of Coco to be shared. Absolutely. But again, thank you, Jonathan, for sticking around. Shout out to super producers, Westoff and Fligner, who have an editing job to do, as always. But we will be back with part two of our State of the Union on the U.S. Women's 2018 season right after this. 